This is Bold Dominion, a state politics explainer for a changing Virginia. I'm Arian Ballou. I came to the University of Virginia in late August of 2017. Young, hopeful, wet behind the ears, still thinking I was going to be a scientist or something. As nostalgic as I am for that time, almost six years ago now, thinking back, it was also kind of weird. See, as students started to arrive for orientation, it was only maybe a week after the Unite the Right rally. That was the white supremacist rally that killed Heather Heyer and saw neo-Nazis openly carrying semi-automatic rifles around Charlottesville. In a way, a lot of my first year was kind of shaped by the aftermath of that rally. There were opening skits at orientation that were talking about it. Weirdly though, it also felt like not that much actually materially changed. And that can often be what it feels like when it comes to guns. We hear about shootings every week, we mourn, and then nothing really changes. We could talk about mass shootings nationally, but even in Virginia, there are plenty of instances that come to mind even within my own memory. Virginia Tech in 2007, Virginia Beach in 2019, a six-year-old shooting his teacher earlier this year, and another mass shooting just this past November that killed three UVA students. More tragedy, but not really more motion. Now, in a debate as polarized and emotionally charged as gun violence, it can feel hard to get a handle on the facts. So we wanted to start with the basics here. Where do Virginia gun laws stand right now? Who can buy a gun and what regulations are in place? To answer these questions, we turned to Andrew Goddard. He's the legislative director for the Virginia Center for Public Safety. Goddard became an activist after the tragedy at Virginia Tech in 2007, where his son was injured. Since then, he's raised awareness on guns and gun safety, he's organized marches, lions, and demonstrations at the NRA headquarters, and he advocates for legislation to prevent gun violence. Bold Dominion producer Alana Bittner sat down with him to get a picture of what gun laws look like in Virginia right now. One of the things that has happened, when, when I started, there were about 800 deaths from guns every year. Uh, in 2007, 2008. Oh, sorry, in Virginia? In Virginia in alone, yes. And that was, at one time, it was uh, two-thirds suicide and one-third homicide. That has changed over the years. And in the last 10 years, for instance, homicide has doubled. We went from 240-odd to, to 500 in 21. So uh, homicide is now becoming a bigger issue than it's been in the past. We haven't seen numbers like this since the 1990s. So the, the who's at risk is in cities, it's more uh, homicide and um, I would say uh, disproportionately affects the African-American and minority communities. Though in the country, it's a lot more white male uh, suicides. And, and of course, white homicides are a, a, a factor too, but not as great as the suicides. But we're all at risk because the number of people carrying guns on a regular basis seems to have increased in Virginia. And of course, if you have more exposure to anything which is risky, the, the greater the exposure, the greater the risk. Mm. Yeah, no, that actually, that's where I wanted to pivot to get like the actual understanding about like the specific gun laws in effect in Virginia right now. Mm. Just to start off, like who can buy a gun in Virginia? Or if the question makes it any easier, like who cannot buy a gun? Actually, it's just about everybody can buy a gun. So that's, you know, the, the, the things that prevent you from being able to buy a gun uh, legally, that is, are um, if you have a, a criminal history, a felony history, 
or if you have been ordered into treatment for mental illness, and there are a number of other factors, but the, the, those are the two bigger ones. So if, you, if, if you're uh, prevented from buying a gun in a legal way from a dealer, or even now in a private seller, you would fail a background check. Virginia actually keeps records of all, the, all of the disqualifiers uh, with the state police, and the state police are the ones that do the background check. In other states, it's not that way. They rely just on the federal government, and the federal government's uh, NICS system doesn't have all of the data. So in Virginia, you have to pass a background check on a private sale or a, or a sale from a dealer. But the, unfortunately, there are still ways to get a gun without that are not legal. So it's still easier in some places to find a gun than it is to find a job. Mm, okay, yeah, no, that's interesting. I was curious, could you dive a little bit deeper into how do the background checks work? How long does that process usually take if someone's going into a store and getting to if buy you a go gun? If into a store, you have to fill out a form. That takes a little bit of time. But as soon as the form is filled out, then the gun store owner calls the state police. And then the state police starts looking up your background. And quite often, I've listened in, on not at the state police level, but at the NICS level, where they do the same thing. I've listened in, and by the time the person's given their name and spelt it out, or the, the store owner's given the name and spelled it out, quite often the police are ready with the answer, either the answer being, oh, no, that, that person is, is prohibited, or go ahead, we have nothing on that person. So it can be very, very short. In some cases, for instance, if someone is thought to have had a, a background check problem from another state, in other words, they have a conviction from another state, but it's unclear what the conviction was, then the police will turn around and say, well, hold off on the sale because we've got to determine whether this was a prohibitory conviction or if it, if it wasn't, especially in terms of drugs. Some states, you know, they have different levels of, of conviction for drug use. And so it has to be decided from the court case. So that can give a delay of up to three days, but it's very rare. Most uh, background checks take just moments to do. So when do you need a permit to buy a gun in Virginia? Uh, never. There's no such thing in Virginia. There's no registration. There's no permitting process. The only permit we have in Virginia is a permit to carry a concealed handgun. That process, when I first got involved, was not complicated, but it was it was a little bit more strenuous than it is today. Unfortunately, over the years, a number of things have been cut back on. It started off being that uh, it was what they called May issue, which was you could apply, but then the police could decide whether you were worthy or not. Unfortunately, then it was changed to shall issue, which means that they will give you the permit unless they can find something wrong. You don't have to give fingerprints anymore. At one point, you didn't even have to prove that you'd had any training or anything like that. Now, nowadays, you're supposed to prove that, but it's very simple to prove. A permit for concealed carry is, is nothing like it, as uh, strenuous as it used to be, and it needs to be put back to being that way. Because when people carry fire loaded firearms in public and concealed from everybody else, you're taking away that person's right to know that they're in the presence of an armed individual. This process and these um, regulations, how does this compare to other states? Is Virginia more or less in the middle of the pack here? Is there um, more well, or less until, until 2020, we were just below the middle. After 2020 and 2021, when we actually got some laws improved, now, now we're a little bit above the middle. But unfortunately, we're still right in the 
national average for deaths and injuries. It's going to take a while for us to, to notice the difference from the increased laws. And of course, for the last two years, we've been fighting to keep those laws. The main effort of the GOP has been to repeal any of the gains we made in 20 and 21. Being that 20 and 21 were such big years for gun violence prevention in Virginia, I was curious, like, what are some major legislative highlights from that those years that you believe has made a difference in this? Well, the universal background checks was, it isn't entirely universal, but it, it was uh, background checks were extended to private sales. That was a big thing because at one time, you know, you just found somebody who wanted to sell you a gun and they sold it to you and nobody asked any questions. Uh, the next thing is we, we got a, um, a substantial risk order, which is a lot of people call a red flag law, which allows someone to be temporarily removed their firearms if they're considered to be in a crisis. If a family member called the police before this law and said, you know, my husband is sitting in the basement, you know, he's drinking heavily every day and he's very depressed. He has a gun on his lap and I'm worried that he's going to commit suicide. When the police came, they could talk to that person, but they couldn't do anything about it. And basically, it turned out to be callers when he's committed a crime, which if it was a suicide would be callers when he's dead. But nowadays, the police can go over there, they can talk to the person and they can determine if that, you know, if they do appear to be a risk to themselves or others, and then they can take away the guns for a while. And then the person gets the chance to go to court and say, no, I'm, I'm much better today. You know, I'm, I've got them over that. And can I have my guns back, please? So that was a big one. A number of other things happened about domestic violence. One of the, the biggest factors, in fact, in gun violence for family members is domestic violence related. But there were a lot of uh, loopholes. You know, we have, I think, 13 or 14 different kind of restraining orders in Virginia. And at one point, only one of them was prohibitory for possession of a firearm. So you have a restraining order against somebody because of violence. And at, at one time, the only one circumstance would allow for the person to be disarmed. So you have a violent situation and they would be allowed to keep guns. They were prevented so in some cases from buying a new gun. But if they already had a gun, they were allowed to keep it. You know, those kind of things were tightened up on. We got a little bit of an improvement in the child access prevention, safe storage, but not, again, the language was not completely as strong as it should be. Several uh, loopholes were left in that law. And, uh, you know, we ended up with a situation where a six-year-old shoots the teacher. So that still needs to be worked on. But we made a lot of, a lot of small improvements because, you know, there isn't one thing that's wrong. So we're not going to be able to come up with one law to fix it. All the different circumstances require different pieces of legislation. How do you sum up the last few years since 2020 and 2021? Like what sort of gun policy proposals are actually going through now that we have a divided House and Senate? Well, um, the, the biggest one, I think, would be uh, an improvement to the safe storage laws, because safe storage impacts a lot of things. It's not just children getting hold of guns. It's actually other people getting hold of guns as well, other family members. And also safe storage covers, you know, leaving a, a loaded gun in your car parked in the driveway with the, the doors unlocked or even with the doors locked and the thing being stolen. Those stolen guns feed the market, the black, what they call the black market for guns. 
you know, an enormous number of guns are being stolen every year from people's vehicles and, and even sometimes from their homes. But if they're in a, in a locked st- safe, nobody's going into your house and, and, and stealing a gun safe or trying to, you know, crack it open while they're there. So we want better safe storage laws. We want to tighten up a little bit on the language of the red flag law, the substantial risk order, so that it makes it clearer to people in different uh, counties that they can use this. This is not an unconstitutional thing. The problem right now is there are a number of places that call themselves Second Amendment sanctuaries, and they've decided that they're not going to implement some of the changes to the laws, which is very sad. I feel like when I was like looking at the various bills that were proposed in the past couple of years, it seems as though the general pattern is the Democratic response is prevention, while Republican response is more aimed at like prosecution or incarceration. In your experience, does that ring true? And yes, if so- it, it, mm. absolutely. When they're not just trying to outright repeal laws that we have recently passed, their idea is that if we kept more people in jail for longer, put more people in jail in the first place and then kept them in there longer, then that would reduce the violence. Actually, our recidivism rate in Virginia is, is pretty low. So the idea that, um, you know, sticking everybody in jail and throwing away the key is, is not really a, a practical answer. The same with minimum sentences, mandatory minimums. It doesn't really fix what's happening in, in the normal situation where a criminal is not going to say, oh, I just say, I'm going to shoot that guy. But oh, hang on a second. That will be five years in jail as opposed to two years in jail. So maybe I won't do it. You know, that most criminals that use guns don't know what the laws are, let alone, uh, you know, they don't know what the penalties are, I should say. So let alone uh, how much time it is and how much it's just been increased. And, and the deterrence of, of jail, you know, it hasn't really been proven to be that deterrent. For, for violent acts. A lot of them are spontaneous. People are not going out there and thinking, hmm, you know, got to weigh up whether this is worth it to, to pull the trigger. They pull the trigger in a moment of anger or, or desperation or what have you. And, and then afterwards, they probably have some remorse and start thinking about, oh my goodness, I'm going to spend a long time in jail. But it doesn't necessarily stop that initial trigger pull. In your opinion, what is like the largest obstacle preventing Virginia legislators from reducing gun violence in the state? Well, actually, I think that the fire hose of misinformation, which we call it, uh, people, even non-gun owners, are being subjected to a lot of nonsense that's been pumped out by the industry. Where we are today with guns is where we were 40 years ago with cigarettes. The industry knew the dangers. They knew all the research. They knew all the numbers. They knew the risks. And yet they they squashed that and they kept telling people that, oh, no, cigarette smoking is fine. Well, the the gun industry is doing exactly the same thing now. Have a gun and you will be safer, which is nonsense. You know, the best way to stop a, a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun, which is nonsense. And unfortunately... We haven't got the, the uh, megaphone to counter that at the same rate that the, the gun lobby is spreading it. I think if we could give the facts to people and let people make a dis- uh, uh, an informed decision on the, the knowledge that, yes, if I go out and buy a gun because I'm afraid, I'm actually increasing my likelihood of, of myself or a family member being hurt or, or killed. And that kind of knowledge, people can't make good decisions if, they have, if they're working on bad information. 
Is there anything else that you that we didn't get to that you think is important that we should? Perhaps the one thing I would say, and that is that the mental illness thing that's being bandied around as being the cause of, of this violence. If, if the people who are saying that really meant it, then they would put money into mental health. The same people who uh, are saying it are the ones who've taken money out of mental health for years and years and years. So, you know, you can't have it that way. You can't have it both ways. And it's, it's nonsense. We have no greater incidence of mental illness than any other country. UK or I mean, my, my former country doesn't have the, uh, the same amount of, of deaths. It's not because of the, the less mental illness. It's because of less guns. It's, uh, it's, it's a device devised only to kill. And it does it very efficiently. And it reduces killing of another individual to the twitch of a finger. Same as turning on or off a light bulb. You can turn on and off a life with a finger. And, and that's, you know, that, that it should be difficult to kill somebody. It should be hard work, you know, so that you can't possibly have enough energy to kill 30-odd people in one go. That was Andrew Goddard, Legislative Director at the Virginia Center for Public Safety. Stick around for our conversation with Brian Moran, a former state legislator who also served as Virginia's Secretary of Public Safety and Homeland Security. You're listening to Bold Dominion, a state politics explainer for a changing Virginia. Visit us online at bolddominion.org. You can always find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever fine podcasts are served up. Go ahead and subscribe. And while you're there, maybe leave us a nice review. It helps us out. Bold Dominion is a member of the Virginia Audio Collective, online at virginiaaudio.org. You can check out all the podcasts from the collective. From science to history to music to community affairs, we amplify the voices of people in our community and help them tell stories that matter. You can listen and subscribe at virginiaaudio.org. Now, at the end of the day, gun violence prevention comes down to legislation. The question is, what laws are getting passed, and who's in the room when those conversations are happening? With the 2020 blue wave in the legislature, Virginia finally saw some movement on gun reform for the first time in years. In this next interview, I sat down with Brian Moran. He served in the House of Delegates for 13 years, before becoming the Secretary for Public Safety and Homeland Security under both Governor McAuliffe and Northam. He walks us through some of the recent history in gun legislation and what's been standing in the way of passing more laws. Simply put this time, it's if you want gun control, you have, you know, it's the Democratic legislature that will pass it. And, you know, that's just, it's just become so polarized now between Democrats and Republicans, which is unfortunate because in uh, 2016, Governor McAuliffe uh, worked very hard on on gun control measures. And we, and we had a Republican legislature and and we worked with Republicans because they were in the majority to pass legislation, you know, it was a compromise, but we ended up at the, in the end of the day, we had a tough domestic violence law said, if you were subject to a domestic violence protective order, you shall not possess a firearm. And if you do possess a firearm, you're subject to felony punishment. So that's years in prison versus days in jail. So that was significant punishment, a significant bill. That did come with Republican support. We were compromised, but that's just one example. There's not a whole lot of that. was a hard-fought compromise, hard-fought uh, legislative deal-making. You were Secretary of Public Safety from around 2014, I think. What were some of the efforts and, and issues that you kind of faced in that role? Because I imagine, you know, the issue of guns and shootings probably falls under public safety's uh, domain. 
Yes, yes, we're we're very concerned with increasing um, deaths from uh, from guns, and you know we're over a thousand, just about three a day, just under three gun deaths a day. Now I will say, sixty percent of those are suicide. That was an issue, for example, that we would try to work with our Republican colleagues over, you know, and we thought that would not be quite as partisan to try to work with Republicans around trying to address mental health, substance abuse, and suicide. 60% of the deaths from handguns are suicide related. So, you know, one of the efforts that we that we took on with the red flag laws, this is a emergency uh, order where you can temporarily uh, deprive someone of the gun possession if they are a threat to themselves or others. And you had a court proceeding, so there was due process involved. And, and this was something that uh, Mike Pence, at the time vice president of the United States, supported in, in the state of Indiana when he was governor. Uh, Florida had enacted it. There were other states, Republicans, who had been supporting. I think there was even a, a, a favorable uh, quote from Donald Trump and his attorney general at the time toward red flag laws. So we thought that would be an issue that we could develop some bipartisan support. So we worked diligently on that. It did not receive bipartisan support, unfortunately. Uh, it did get passed in 2020 with the Democratic legislature. And I'm very pleased to say uh, to you and your listeners, we've had over 500 red flag uh, ERPO laws. It's, a, a, it's an emergency protective order issued in Virginia uh, since it got passed over the, since 2020 to today. And it's in jurisdictions. I mean, some you'd assume Fairfax County, Virginia Beach, but also like Hanover County, you know, a conservative jurisdiction has issued, I think, over 50 uh, burpos. And so that, that, I think, is a law that, again, addresses not only those who are violent toward others, but also themselves. Because if a family member uh, can can recognize and identify some depression issues, realize, you know, somebody's, you know, that the person may say something about harming themselves or others, and they have a firearm, that person can alert the, the authorities, law enforcement, and they can come interview the individual and, and deprive them of their gun for up to 14 days. So it's a temporary deprivation. And then, it, and, and then you can go to court. And if the person's fine, they're you know, this was a very you know, aberrational behavior, they can get their gun back. So we thought that was a very reasonable approach to both, um, you know, suicide plus, you know, homicide. Uh, were there any other laws in the last couple of years with the sort of Democratic legislature, uh, in addition to the red flag laws that are kind of worth mentioning here that we got passed? Yeah, sure. And, and um, universal background checks, so, uh, and, which is very popular among the public, which is something we try to get our Republican colleagues to support. It's like polls are like 70%. People believe if you're going to purchase a firearm, you should go through some basic background to make sure that, uh, you know, you have no criminal background. Uh, uh, and so you're, you know, safe to purchase a firearm. Uh, so that passed. Uh, we One gun a month, I mentioned. We also passed some legislation around um, localities being able to restrict where guns are uh, used and that's important to the Charlottesville area because I, you know, I was in Charlottesville during two, August of 2017, and we had militia groups walking up and down uh, the street. I mean, it was uh, it was surreal to see militia groups carrying their semi-automatic rifles up and down uh, the streets of Charlottesville. 
So we we provided locality some authority to restrict that uh, public public use, uh, you know, during demonstrations. But I would love to know how that worked. And the challenge with that is, you know, we, uh, you know, you got to have a study. You got to have some agencies take some time to figure out the data. And you know, we don't right now. I don't think the current administration is all that interested in knowing. I mean, I, uh, you know, that, that's just the way it is. Uh, you know, that they, they have other priorities. So, you know, at some point it would be uh, important to just go back and see how it is working. Now, the red flag law, we do have some data. You know, we have over 500 issued. So that that data is kept by the Virginia State Police. So we can check on how that is being utilized. But it's tough to it's tough to measure the others. And if they're not working, then, you know, that that gives our opponents the opportunity to say, hey, this, this law is not working. Um but really, at this point, there's just a dearth of data to say they're working or not. And uh, that's, you know, that's a bit challenging. You know, who is in the room when these conversations are happening? Who is you know, shaping those conversations? Well, from our side of the aisle, when we worked with the red flag law, for example, this was a good example. We really tried to reach out to our stakeholders. Now, and one of the important stakeholders is law enforcement. I mean, if you pass a law and they're not willing to use it, it, it's it's not particularly useful. So we had law enforcement at the table. We had advocates at, at the table. We have wonderful advocates in Virginia. Unfortunately, they they originated because of tragedies, particularly Virginia Tech. You know, we have Andy Goddard. We have Laurie Haas, who's just been instrumental in helping um, you know the McAuliffe and then the Northern administration put together some reasonable uh, legislation, and they're they're fearless with respect to their advocacy. Uh, in in the General Assembly. So, you know, we put together stakeholders and we invited, uh, you know, uh, some of the first meetings I remember, I invited representatives from Green Top gun uh, store because one of the issues with Red Flight, if, if they confiscate a firearm, what are they going to do with it? The police didn't want to store it. Some of these smaller police departments don't have room for it. So there was an idea that, you know, would work with our firearm dealers to provide storage so that safe storage. We don't want anything to happen to the farm. We don't want it stolen. We don't want it damaged. So we really did reach out to all the stakeholders that we could think of that would help us craft legislation that could be bipartisan. So in that sense, that that was who was at the table. You know, sometimes that isn't particularly successful. People withdraw because they see, you know, they just politically, again, it's very polarized. They don't want to be associated with, you know, what what our Opponents would call gun grabs. So when I say they, it kind of depends on which administration is in power. I mean, we'll we'll have the advocates at the table. Every town, uh, moms demand action. Uh, gun uh, Brady, you know, uh, Giffords. All of these advocacy groups exist, um, and they're uh, they're excellent. And then the other side has their own advocate, you know, NRA, VCDL, and it kind of depends on the administration who's going to be who's willing to come to the table. Do you have, you know, hope? Do you have a sense of where things might be going, you know, in the next few years? Yeah, I, I, you know, I wish I could be more optimistic. I, mean, I spent 13 years in the legislature. I carried bills, would go before a committee, and they just get those bills that just been crushed. No, you know, there were no motions to even pass them, uh, and that continued much of my um, period of as secretary, my eight years as secretary. As much as we tried some bipartisan work, and I, I, 
I wouldn't give up on bipartisan work because you don't you're not insured of a democratic sweep in 23 and in 25. Uh, so I, I always felt it was important to reach out across the aisle and try to get Republican support. But uh, now again, I'm, I'm, I'm discouraged because it just becomes so partisan, so polarized. Um, you know, I do think if we're going to get an assault weapon ban, it really does belong on the national level because they cross state lines. Doing it as a state's difficult. And, but then I'm not sure the current Supreme Court, you know, the, the Second Amendment of the Constitution is what five members of the nine member Supreme Court says it says. It's not me. Uh, it's not you. Uh, you know, it's not the judge and circuit court in Charlottesville, but it's going to be uh, five members of the, the majority of the nine member Supreme Court. So, but I, I think that's that's legislating. And then, then, of course, our, you know, they'll say, well, how do you get the guns off the street? And I do think that's a practical problem. But you know, at some point, we need to stop the violence that these guns are creating. And it's just they're not used for hunting. And they did not exist when the Second Amendment was written. The power, the lethality of these weapons needs to be addressed. And, and uh, uh, you know, I wish I could say I'm optimistic, but, uh, you know, over, what, three decades of work in this issue, yeah, I'm passionate about it. We've made some success. I mean, really have. We cut a great deal in 2016 around domestic violence. Um, 2020, a lot of legislation was passed. Uh, but we continue to have, you know, senseless acts of gun violence that we need to address. So we just keep pushing, keep working, keep working. That was Brian Moran, Virginia's former Secretary of Public Safety and Homeland Security. Thanks to him and Andrew Goddard for joining us this week. My name is Arian Ballou, and I'm the host of Bold Dominion. Our producer this week is the pertinacious Alana Bittner. Find us online at bolddominion.org, and don't forget to subscribe. It's just a click away.